0: We're in a summer series through the book of Esther, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 3. If you want to find the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 3, go to Psalms, go left, a couple of books and you'll come to Esther, chapter 3. As we were looking at this book last week, we were in chapter 2, and we saw Esther facing the struggle of living between two worlds. There was the Jewish world where she was raised, and then there was the Persian world that she now lived in and had become queen in. Now, some of you have asked since last Sunday, because it was quite an unusual passage we were looking at last Sunday, some of you have asked about my personal opinion about Esther. Was she a willing participant in the Persian beauty pageant, or was she caught up in something she had no control over? I told you to talk about it at lunch, and then I'd tell you my thoughts today, and so I'm going to do that real quickly. I don't think anybody can say with absolute certainty, because the text doesn't say, uh, but I believe the, the book does seem to point to the fact that Esther probably was a godly young woman who was caught up in a very difficult situation. I think she was one of those ladies who was as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside. Uh, some hints to that, just so you'll know if, if you're taking notes and want to make references. Chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The girl pleased him and won his favor. There was something about her where when people met her, they were pleased by her. Chapter 2, verse 15, Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. It's as if that there was a blessedness on her life. And in fact, in chapter 4, where we hear these words, and we'll look at them next Sunday. In chapter 4, it says, And who? And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. And the implication in that verse is perhaps God has brought you to this place for such a time as this. So when you put those pieces of the puzzle together, I think that indeed Esther was a godly young woman, as pretty on the inside as she was on the outside, but caught in a difficult situation of trying to live in two worlds. Now, when we come to the end of chapter 2, the story sounds almost like a fairy tale. We didn't quite get to the end of chapter 2, if you'll remember, last Sunday. But when you come to the very end of chapter 2, the story sounds almost like a fairy tale. It sounds a lot like the movie that I watched on Friday night, Beauty and the Beast. Have you ever watched Beauty and the Beast, the, the, at least the movie? And you're wondering, well, Pastor, why were you watching it? There's probably some of you. Well, uh, Lisa wanted to watch it, so I was watching it. And I'll just tell you this, halfway through the movie, she turned to me. She said, you're not into this, are you? <laughs> so, I've watched it, but it has a very good ending. At the very end of the, of the movie, there's this great banquet and party, and there's, there's all kinds of dancing and celebration, and it's just a, a great ending. And that's the way chapter 2 ends. Look in chapter 2, verse 18. It's almost like a fairy tale. It says in chapter 2, verse 18, And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. And he proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. I mean, it was, just a, it was just a kind of a fairy tale ending. The queen has been found. The people are celebrating. Xerxes has his wife and everyone is happy. And everyone's throwing a party. Everyone is celebrating. Unfortunately, not even in biblical days, did people live happily ever after. You see, Susa quickly became a dangerous place to live, especially... If you were a Jew, while the majority in the kingdom were pleased with the way things were going, there was something sinister happening in the background. A secret conspiracy was growing in the minds of two men. Look in chapter 2, verse 19. Let's continue reading in that chapter. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done while, she was, while he was bringing her up. i read carefully the next few verses, verse 21 and following. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Akthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on the gallows. And all this is recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. Verse 19 to 21, we're told that Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Now that's more than him just sitting at the gateway of a city. Uh, the phrase sitting at a king's gate, and we see it twice in that text, it, it really is implying that he had an administrative capacity now in Xerxes' kingdom. He was one of the royal officials. Chapter 3, verse 1, you'll see, and verse 2, you'll see him listed among the royal officials. The, the gate was the ancient equivalent of our modern-day law court where business was conducted and kingdom business was conducted. So Mordecai is now sitting among the leaders at the king's gate. He's sitting there in this place of business. And it's very probable that Queen Esther got him the job. And There's nothing wrong with that, but it's interesting that that's probably how he made it to this position. But here's Mordecai, a faithful Jew, who hears that these two men hate the king and that they're plotting an assassination against Xerxes. So Mordecai tells Esther, and Esther tells the king, the two men are investigated, the the report is investigated, and the two men are hung on the gallows. Now, it's interesting what happens here. Follow this. Mordecai, a Jew, a faithful Jew, spoils the assassination plot, and saves the life of a pagan king named Xerxes. Now, the reason that is so significant is because in just a moment, when we go to chapter 3, this same king is going to give the okay to murder Mordecai and all the Jews. Does that make sense to anybody? The man who has saved your life will soon, the king will soon turn on him and say, you can kill him, and you can kill all of the people like him. You can kill Mordecai the Jew, and you can kill all the other Jews as well. Let's read the text and see how in the world all of this unfolds. Chapter 3, verse 1. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of... Hem- I have a hard time with that one. I've been practicing that one. I still messed it up. Hamadaphtha the Agagite evalu- elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. And all the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. In an unexpected twist, the new character is introduced in the book, a man named Haman. Haman becomes second in command. He becomes Xerxes' right-hand man. Now, it's kind of a twist because you would have expected that if Mordecai was the one who saved the king from assassination, that Mordecai would be the one elevated to a place of prominence, that he would be the one promoted. You would expect that he would get the promotion. He's the one who uncovered the plot. He's the one who saved the king. So why is Haman getting the promotion? Oh, I forgot to tell you something. Life isn't fair. You found that out, haven't you? Some of you know by experience that life isn't fair. You are the one who worked the hardest. You are the one who came up with the ideas. You are the one who put in the late hours and worked on the weekends. You are the one who went the extra mile, and somebody else got the promotion. Somebody else got the recognition, or somebody else got the, got the raise. Somebody else got that spot. Life just isn't fair. There's an interesting note in verse 2. Look The second part of verse 2, it says... But Mordecai, that that everybody was coming to kneel down and pay honor to Haman in verse 2, and it says in the second half of the verse, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, if you think that the reason that Mordecai will not kneel down to Haman and pay him honor is because Mordecai felt like he should be in that position, if it's it's just simple uh, jealousy, then you would be wrong. There's something deeper than that going on here. Look at verse 3 and 4. I'll show you why Mordecai would not bow down. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? The king's command was everyone must bow down and honor Haman. And when you see Haman, you must bow down in his presence and honor him. So the people are asking, the royal officials at the king's gate, they're asking, why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him about they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. So this is not a one-time deal. This is something that continued to happen day after day. And, and the other guys would bow down, but Mordecai stood there. And so the people, the, the royal officials were trying to figure this out. Day after day, they spoke to him. He refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. I want you to underline something. Get your Bibles, get your pen. I want you to underline something. Underline these words. He had told them he was a Jew. What was there about being a Jew that prohibited him from doing what everybody else was doing? Some scholars have suggested that Mordecai would not bow down because to do so would violate the second of the Ten Commandments. That we are not to bow down and worship anyone but God. However, there are several instances in the Old Testament where Jews bow down either to other Jews or even to pagans. In fact, let me just give you a few references so you can check it out for yourself. Uh, Genesis 23, verse 7. Genesis 33, verse 3. Genesis 42, verse 6. Just three references of many where we could see that indeed Jews sometimes did bow down to respect, to honor someone. It wasn't anything to do with worship, but they would bow down in respect and honor of someone else. And so they did not see that necessarily as a breaking of the second commandment. So it's not likely that that the reason Mordecai would not bow down, it's not likely because of the second commandment. Why then was Mordecai refusing to bow down? Well, Haman's response to Mordecai gives us our best clue as to what may be happening. Look at verse 5. Apparently, Haman hadn't noticed this before, but when they bring his attention to the fact that Mordecai is not kneeling down, it says in verse 5, When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was what? What was that next word, church? He was what? Enraged. Not just angry. He was enraged. Yet, verse 6, Having learned who Mordecai's people were, He scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. What in the world is happening here? What a twisted moment this is in the story. When Haman realizes that Mordecai is not bowing down, He's enraged, but to such a degree that he's not just angry at him, and he's not just wanting to hurt him or put him in jail or even kill him, but he takes it to the ultimate when he says, I will kill everybody like him. I'm going to kill him and all of his people, and not just him and all of his people here in the city of Susa. I'm going to kill him and all of his people in the entire Persian Empire. 127 provinces. From India, all, all the way to, uh, to uh, Ethiopia. I'm going to kill all of those people, including those in the area we would currently call Israel. I'm going to kill all of the Jews, all of Mordecai's people. Simply because Mordecai refused to bow down. Now, there has to be something going on here. What, what in the world would cause him to respond that way? But the answer is a grudge. A 500-year-old grudge. Now you need to track with me for a moment, it'll be well worth your time. I want you to follow closely. You see, in a Hebrew narrative like this one, the the way that a character is introduced is key to understanding his or her role in the story. So when you're reading a Hebrew narrative, an Old Testament narrative, when, when somebody is introduced, the way that they are introduced is key to understanding their part, their role in the story. So let's see how these two characters are introduced. In chapter 2, verse 5, I want you to look at that with me. Let's go to school for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 5, dig in with me. Tell me how Mordecai is introduced. How is Mordecai introduced? He's introduced as what? He's introduced as a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin. Now go to chapter 3, verse 1. Haman is is introduced for the first time in the text. And in chapter 3, verse 1, how is Haman introduced? What what is he called? It's after the word the. Yes, the Agagite. So in chapter 2, verse 5, for the first time, Mordecai is introduced. He's introduced as a Jew. Chapter 3, verse 1, Haman is introduced for the first time. He's introduced as an Agagite. Now, those aren't trivial titles. Folks, this is kind of like the Hatfields and McCoys. Best way I can describe it to you. I want you to write down, if you take taking notes, I want you to write down Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. Exodus chapter 17, verses 8 through 16. We won't have time to read that. You can do that later. But let me explain what's going on here. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. This heathen nation had the dubious distinction of being the first people to attack and try to destroy God's people. Now make sure you've heard that. Agag is the king of this heathen nation and they were the first nation to attack what we would call the Jews. They were the first people group to attack the Jews and try to destroy God's people. You know, when they did it, the Amalekites attacked the Jews as they were leaving Egypt. As they were leaving Egypt, going to the Promised Land. It's, it's in the Old Testament. The story is there. You'll find it in Exodus. And they, they attacked God's people, the first group to do so. And in, chapter, in, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 16, here's what we read. The story ends this way. Listen to this. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Let that sink in for a moment. Because this group attacked God's people as they were leaving Egypt and going into the promised land, God declared there will be war against these people who attack my people from generation to generation. And when we come to the book of Esther, about 500 years have passed. From generation to generation to generation, there has been this enmity between those who are are Amalekites and those who are Jews. That's why in this book, Mordecai is introduced as a Jew, and and Haman is introduced as an Agagite, an Amalekite. There's this battle between these two races that has existed for generations. You see, Haman's father hated the Jews, and his father hated the Jews, and his father hated the Jews, and his father hated the Jews Jews for generations, for 500 years. And so, when Mordecai wouldn't bow down, and Haman recognized or found out he's a Jew, all of a sudden, the second man, the second most powerful man in Persia, saw a way to end the generational battle. He's a Jew. I'll kill him, all of his people like him. You see, Haman is the Hitler of his day. Haman was, was the one who wanted to exterminate the Jews. His personal mission, self-appointed mission, was to kill all of Mordecai's people, all of the Jews. And so let's pick up the story and see what's about to happen. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the purr, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman, to select a day and a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. You know what they're trying to do here? Haman is trying to decide, what day shall we start the slaughter? What day will we appoint that we can exterminate the Jews? I mean, this is genocide, pure genocide. What, what day shall we do this? These were very superstitious pagan people, and so they decided in their, in their superstitious ways to cast the lot, to throw the dice, if you will. And, and, and they had this system of continually casting the lot until it landed on a certain thing, and, and it, they saw that as a sign that they were to wait 11 months because they cast the lot in the first month of the year, that they were to wait until the 12th month of the year, and that would be the day of execution. Probably in Haman's mind, he's thinking, that's okay. That makes it even better. I'll torture them for 11 months, making them wait and dread what's coming. I mean, just think about it. If someone came to our church today from the government and said, 11 months from now, next June, June of 2018, we're going to kill you and all of your family simply because you're Christian. And not only are we going to kill you and all of your family, we're going to kill you, we're going to kill your, your spouse, we're going to kill your children, we're going to kill your grandchildren. Not only are we going to do that, we're going to kill everybody in the church because you're Christian. Not only are we going to do that, we're going to kill everybody in South Carolina because you're, that, that are Christians. And not only will we do that, we'll kill all the Christians throughout America. And so nobody is safe anywhere in every place in all of America. Next June 2018, we'll kill every Christian that lives in America. And then you have to wait. Imagine what torture that would be to hold your little grandbaby or to look at your son or your daughter or your wife or your husband and know that that day of slaughter is hanging over your head. So Haman waits and he looks forward to that day. Now, there's just one other thing he's got to do. Haman has to convince the king to go along with his plan. See, right now he doesn't have permission. Right now all he has is a plan, but now he needs permission to carry it out. He's got a diabolical plan, so he needs the king to okay it. So we read in verse 8. This is amazing to me. I don't want you to miss this. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel. I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 2. Let me go back to chapter 3, verse 8. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, there's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom whose customs are different from those of all the other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And notice this. And I'll put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. Haman doesn't even mention that they're Jews. He just said, there's some people in your kingdom, and they don't follow your laws or your decrees. They're not very, it's just not very wise to let them be here. I think it would be most wise for us to exterminate them. And he said, and if, you're, if you'll go along with us, tell you what, I'll foot the bill. In fact, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver to see them exterminated. I did a little research. This is going to absolutely blow your mind, but... Do you know how much 10,000 talents of silver is? For some of you, if you have a study Bible, it's probably in your footnote, 10,000 talents of silver was 375 tons of silver. I'll tell you something, that's a lot of hatred. It's not only a lot of money, it's a lot of hatred. To say, I will give 375 tons of silver if you'll just let me exterminate these awful people, 375 tons of silver. It's a massive amount of hate. And so look what happens, verse 10. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of, I can't pronounce that one, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And here's what he said in verse 11. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the thirteenth day of the first month, the, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the kings, satraps, the governors, and the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces in order to... Watch this, you might even want to underline it. In order to... Destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews. Pause. Young and old, women and little children. Pause. On a single day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. So that they would be ready for that day of slaughter. Now, let me share with you two very valuable lessons from this remarkable and relevant story. You see, a lot of what we read in chapter 3 explains what's going on in our world even today. A lot of what you read in the news or maybe what's happening in your own family can be explained from the principles found in Esther chapter 3. Two very valuable lessons from this remarkably relevant story are these. Number one, never minimize the destructive nature of anger. Never minimize the destructive nature of of anger. I want you to go back with me as we started the story. we were in chapter 2. Uh, let's go back to chapter 2, verse 21. I want you to notice something. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bethana and Teresh, two of the king's officers were, who guarded the doorway, notice this, they became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Why couldn't they just brush it off, shrug it off, and say, you know, there, there's something we don't like about that guy. We don't like what he did, but why couldn't they just shrug it off? Why, why couldn't they just say, you know, why don't we give him another break? Why don't we give him another chance? The, the poor guy's got a lot on his mind. The poor guy's got a lot that he's got in charge of. Let, let's just give him a break. But that's not what they did. There was, there was anger involved, and the anger lit a fuse, didn't it? That anger lit a fuse that led them to the point where they just decided to assassinate Exerxes. Their anger moved them forward. Their anger drove them forward. Their anger pushed them to do more than just be angry. Their anger caused them to decide to assassinate Xerxes. Haman is the same way. I know we've read it, but let's read it again for emphasis sake. Chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was Enraged. Enraged. How how enraged was he? Verse six. Yet, having learned that Mordecai's people were scorned, the Uh, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, he looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the the Jews. And and then that in verse thirteen, I I told you to note it in your Bible. It says that uh, in verse thirteen that he was going to annihilate and to kill and to destroy. You see, ladies and gentlemen, listen to this. When anger is allowed to fester, it leads to a rage that often leads to murder. Let me ask you a very personal question. Are you mad at anybody right now? I mean, are you really mad at anyone right now? I know that's a very personal question for some of you. But I'm going to ask you again, are you mad at anyone? Over in the Life Center, I want to ask you a very personal question. Are you mad At anyone like right now, I mean, really, really mad. Let me help prompt an honest honest answer by making some suggestions. Maybe there's a former spouse or former boss. Maybe even a former pastor. Maybe it's a former roommate or maybe it's the church you used to go to before you came to this one. Maybe it's a person that abused you or maybe it's somebody that left you. Maybe it's somebody who took your money. Maybe it's somebody who ruined your reputation. so easy to get angry. I get angry, you get angry, but we need to make sure that we understand the destructive nature of anger. That's why in Ephesians 4.26 it says this, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And then it says, And do not give the devil a foothold. That's one of those verses you probably need to mark in your Bibles. Do not give the devil a foothold. You see, mark it down. The devil uses our anger for his destructive purposes. The devil uses our anger for his destructive purposes. That's why the Bible says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. That your anger should never last more than 24 hours. And if your anger is lasting more than 24 hours, then my friend, you're living in sin. If you're hurt and you're angry and your anger has spilled over for days or weeks or months or sadly, maybe even years, you need to be on your guard because the devil can use your anger for his destructive purposes. He did it in Haman's life. He did it in the life of the two guards. And he can do it in your life too. James one twenty puts it best as, I, uh, as I've ever seen. James one twenty says, Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God t- desires. So that anger that you feel justified in holding on to, that anger that you feel justified in having, let me tell you something about that anger. Man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. God does not want you to hang on to your anger. Satan wants you to because he uses your anger for his destructive purposes. Lesson number two. Never underestimate the depravity of the human heart. Now, I want you to hear this, and I want you to check out on me. I want you to make sure you hear this one. Never underestimate the depravity of the human heart. We see examples of this several places in this chapter. Let me read them for you again. In verse 6, he says, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. We see it again in verse 11, where it says, where the king says to Haman, keep the money, the king says to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter if you're going to exterminate a whole... Uh, nation. It doesn't matter if you're going to do a genocide. Just just keep the money. It's fine. You just go do whatever you want to. We see it again in verse 15. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers went out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. And look at this. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The callousness, the cold-heartedness It's shocking that the king and Haman, after deciding that they would exterminate the entire Jewish race in the Persian kingdom, they said, i tell you what, let's just go have a drink. Come on, let's just sit down and have a good time. Let's just go enjoy ourselves. Exterminate an entire race of people without any hesitation or reservation. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. same verse in the NIV says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. I want you to listen to me. That's not just talking about the heart of Haman. That's talking about your heart and mine. Our heart is desperately wicked. You see, when, when God does not have control in someone's life, then the depth of depravity in someone's life is shocking. You see, maybe I can say it this way. When God is absent, ladies and gentlemen, when God is absent from a life, we are capable of doing anything. great example of that was just this past week. Did you see the story? Uh, Did you see the story from a lady in Georgia? Took a knife, stabbed her four children to death, stabbed her husband to death, and when she was in the courtroom, they took a picture of her, she smiled for the camera and gave a two thumbs up. She had just killed four children and her husband, stabbed them to death, and she smiles for the camera and gives two thumbs up. That is the depth of depravity in a human heart. Never underestimate the depravity, the deceitfulness, the wickedness your heart and mine I want you to know something that same animal like nature that, reside, that reside, or resided in the heart of Haman resides in us as well, the Bible calls it sin and it's evil and it's wicked and were it not, somebody get ready here were it not for the presence of almighty God We could have been Haman too. Chuck Swindoll said it this way. He says, Were not the power of the Holy Spirit given to me in daily doses, my grudges, my lack of forgiveness could grow into thoughts that would shock you and yours would shock me. Here's what I've come to tell you today. Were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ, in my life, I'm capable of anything so are you. You see, ladies and gentlemen, this is the very reason that God invaded our world, our polluted world, in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the very reason that Jesus died on the cross. It is to save us from our sins because God knows that the heart is desperately wicked. He wrote those words in Jeremiah 17.9. He knows that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He knows that there's no cure for our heart. The only way that we can be different is when He changes our heart. And He changes our heart when He comes to live inside of us when we invite Him into our life, and that's what the cross is all about. The cross is basically God saying, listen, you'll never get it right without me. You're capable of anything because of the depravity of the human heart. You're capable of anything. No sin is outside the boundaries in your heart and in your life unless Jesus is Lord of your life. You're capable of anything. When Christ died on the cross, He died to say, but I can save you from everything. I can change you in such a way that the only way to describe it is that you are born again with a new heart, a new life, a new future. Haman, listen to me. You need Jesus. Only Jesus can change your deceitful Wicked heart. You can keep trying to turn over a new leaf. You can keep trying to live better. You can keep trying to do better. But you're going to fail. Your anger is destroying you and those around you. Your heart is leading you down a path you don't want to go down, and you don't even understand why you're acting this way and why you're doing it. The heart is deceitfully wicked. It is doing the devil's bidding until one day we say, Lord Jesus, would you come live in my heart and make me a different person? I want to invite you to do that today here in the Life Center. I want to invite you to simply admit who you are. And admit to Jesus how desperately you need Him to forgive you of your sin and come live in you. Would you join me as we pray? I like the old hymn that says, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Father, we recognize that we're not able to help ourselves. We're not able to change ourselves. And if we are left to ourselves, we will in do, indeed do hateful, deceitful, destructive things. I pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would continue to show these dear people in this service, those in the Life Center, those listening online, that the Lord Jesus Christ would show them that He is the answer, the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that somebody here today, those listening online, those listening in the Life Center, I pray that somebody today might say, Lord, my heart is deceitful. Lord, my heart is sinful. God, come into my heart. Cleanse me and change me. Get rid of this anger, this bitterness. Make me a new person. I pray, oh God, somebody do that today. In Jesus' name, amen.